You're listening to How to Win with Mike Moore, the podcast that provides you with practical insights on how to win in every arena of life. Let's get started uh, with our lesson today. Hello, I'm Mike Moore, and welcome to another episode of the How to Win podcast. These podcast series are based off 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. We always win in Christ. We always, come on, say, I always win. Come on, say, say this, I am a winner. If I always win, I am a winner. Come on, say that, I am a winner. Now, we're talking uh, on the subject, your words, your world. Your words, your world. This is our third episode. Now, let's review for just a moment. In our first two episodes, first two lessons, we learned that God created man to exercise dominion. We also learned that dominion is exercised through the spoken words, God's word in the mouth of the believer. We learned, thirdly, that God gave believers the power God has given you, the power God has given you, the power to create, the power to establish. God has given you the power to repair things in your life, the power to adjust things in your life, and God has given you the power to restore that which is lost in your world. Now, there are, you know, I've said this uh, in a recent, well, in a in a former lesson. I said that there are three, the three greatest revelations that I've received from the the Spirit of God is number one, a revelation on giving. God opened my eyes to help me to see that giving is a lifestyle and move me out into that. The second greatest revelation I believe that I received from the Spirit of God is about reacting in love. And then the third is what we're talking about now, the power of our words. God taught me that the power of my words will effect change in my life. So that's what we're talking about. Now, remember... Before I give you the subject for the day, remember that this series, Your Words, Your World, was birthed out of a test that I gave in a prior series entitled Speak the Truth. At the end of that series, Speak the Truth, I gave a test. And some of you said, Pastor, I flunked the test. So I needed, I knew I needed to go back and give you some foundational insight so you'll pass that text. So that's the origin of your words, your world. Today we're going to talk about creating the reality, creating the reality of who you are in Christ in your world, creating the reality of who you are in Christ in your world. I'm going to say that again because I want you to listen at what we're shooting for today. Creating the reality of who you are in Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about, who you are in Christ in your world. Now, the implication there is that it's possible to be in Christ and yet your natural world does not align with who you are in Christ. Now, it's possible to be born again and in Christ, because that's who you are, where you, that's who you are, you're, you're in Christ, that's where you are, you're in Christ, but it's possible to be in Christ, but who you are in Christ is out of alignment to your natural experiences. So we want to talk about creating who you are 
in Christ in your world. Now, listen at Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, the authorized King James Version. It says, and you are complete in Christ. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, and you are complete in Christ. Let's make that a confession. I am complete in Christ. Now, if you're born again, this is true of you. Let's say this. I am complete in Christ. Come on, let's say it again. I am complete in Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you, let me see your hand now, how many of you have heard that text before, that scripture before? How many of you knew that you're completing Christ? Let me see your hand. Okay, I see your hand, I see your hand, I see your hand. Oh, you don't have your hand down, but maybe you had never heard that. Okay, okay. Now, listen at this. Now, what does that mean? You said that you know it, you've quoted it, you've heard it preached, that you're complete in Christ, but what does that mean? Have you ever taken the time to, to ask, what does it mean to be complete in Christ? I'll give you a definition, and it's going to involve four words, and this is just our introduction, because you're going to find out something about who you are today, and I, and I want to introduce you to you. I am going by the Spirit of God to introduce you to you. Now, listen at this. The word complete in Christ means, number one, to be satisfied. Number two, it means to be accomplished. And number three, it means to be fulfilled. And number four, it means finished, finished. The word satisfied means to be sufficient. So from God's perspective, you are sufficient in Christ. In other words, there's nothing missing and there's nothing lacking in you. I bet you didn't know that. I bet you didn't know that. There's nothing missing, nothing lacking. You're sufficient, satisfied in Christ. Secondly, you're accomplished in Christ. You are accomplished in Christ. The word accomplished means highly skilled, proficient. I bet you didn't know that about yourself, but when God sees you, he sees you highly skilled and proficient. The word fulfill, and most people, if I ask you, do you want to feel fulfilled? You say, yeah, I want to be fulfilled. But fulfill means happiness or contentment. I bet you didn't know you were happy and contented in Christ. And then the word finish means to reach the end. You see, when God sees you, he doesn't really get caught up in your journey. He's aware of it. But when God sees you, he sees you finished. He sees you mature. He sees you on top. That's the way God sees you. Now, many Christians, many, not a few, but many Christians are not walking in the reality of their completeness in Christ. I'll say that again. I'm not finished with the sentence. Many Christians, not a few now, many Christians are not walking in the reality of their completeness in Christ because of a self-image problem. Now, I'll say that again. Many Christians are not walking in the reality of their completeness in Christ because of a self-image problem. In other words, many Christians lack 
a Christ-centered self-esteem, many Christians lack a Christ-centered self-esteem. So when you hear me use the word the rest of the way, self-image, when you hear me use those two words, self-image, I want you to understand I'm talking about a Christ-centered self-esteem. Now, that leads us to the body of what I want to share with you today, that introduction. Let's talk about what is self-image. Let's talk about why self-image important. Let's talk about the five influences on your self-image. Let's talk about who are you in Christ, who you are in Christ. And remember today, I'm going to introduce you to you. Now, I know, I know some of you have never met you before. Some of you have never met yourself before. Some of you, since you you got saved, you would walk right past yourself and not recognize you. You see you as the old person. So if you walked about by yourself today, some of you would not even recognize yourself. So I'm going to introduce you to you. And when this lesson is over, you're going to know who you are. And let's, you, let's throw in some bad English. You're going to know who you ain't. You're going to know who you are. And you're going to know who you ain't. And you're going to start saying, that ain't me. You're going to say to the devil, that ain't me. That ain't me. Don't you like that? Don't you like that? That's Southern right there. That's, we're in the South. That's good Southern. Maybe you listen to this in the North. It'll work in the North. You can say, that isn't me, okay? Any way you want to take it. But let's talk about self-image. Self-image is a mental, mental picture of yourself. Self-image is a self-portrait. Self-image involves how you feel feel about your strength, how you feel about your weaknesses, how you feel about your abilities. Now, why is self-image important? Why is self-image important? Remember, you can send me questions, you can send me insights you get or things you want to share. Now, why is self-image important? Self-image is important because we usually act in harmony with what we think and feel about ourselves. Your self-image is important because usually we act in harmony with what we think and feel about ourselves. However you think and feel about you, you will act in harmony with that. Now listen at this. Numbers 13, verse 33. This is after God sent, gave instructions to Moses to send 12 spies into the land uh, that he had promised, the land of Canaan. The 12 spies went into the land, and the Bible says that 10 of the spies came back with a report. Two of the spies came back with a different report. 10 of the spies says, we saw what's there, but there's giants there, and we can't take the land. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said we can take the land. Now, listen to Numbers 13, 33. We're talking about why self-image is important. And we were, this is the authorized King James Version, we were in our own sight, 
as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. That's Numbers 13.33, King James Version. We were in our own sight is the critical piece of the text. We were in our own sight. So were we in their sight, which implies that in some cases, the way you see yourself will influence others to see you that way. Because usually how we see ourselves is reflected by, uh, by others toward us. That's not always the case. But they said we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So were we in their sight. I like the, the uh, New Living Translation, Numbers 13, 33 in the New Living Translation. It says, next to them, they said next to them, the ten spies said next to the giants, we felt like grasshoppers. We felt, remember that. We felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. They felt like grasshoppers, and that's what the giant thought too. That's the New Living Translation. And that's what happens. There are times when we feel a certain way about ourselves, and we just automatically think that others feel the same way. We have no proof that the giants ever saw them. No proof at all. But oftentimes, the way we feel, the way we see ourselves, is how we think others feel about us. Now listen at this. Why is self-image important? Because we usually act in harmony with what we think and feel about ourselves. But self-image is important for another reason. It impacts, it affects every area of our lives. Our self-image affects every area of our lives. It affects how we, our ability to learn. It affects our capacity to grow and change. It affects our ability to handle pressure and adversity. It affects our choices, who we choose as friends, who we choose as dates, who we choose as mates. It affects the schools we choose. Some schools we won't even try to, uh, we won't try to apply to because we don't think we will get accepted. It chooses our careers. It chooses our, it affects our performance level. So self-image affects every area of our lives. Now, let's move to the five influences on our self-image. How is our self-image developed? How is your self-image developed? Your self-image is developed Either through, number one, the eyes of people. Number two, the eyes of yourself. Number three, the eyes of Satan. Number four, the eyes of experience. Or number five, through the eyes of God. Now, let's look at each one of them. Our self-image is developed or influenced through the eyes or by the eyes of others. In other words, sometimes our self-image is developed about is developed by people's opinions of us, what others think about us. Our self-image is developed by how other people treat us. Our self-image is developed by culture and media's evaluation of us. In other words, when we are affirmed by people, we feel good about ourselves. 
When we are appreciated by people, we feel real good about ourselves. For example, growing up as a student, whether it was uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, I excel because my mother thought I was the smartest person on planet Earth. She just bragged all the time about my A's. Michael got A's. Michael got straight A's. She talked about it all the time. And guess what happened? I began to see myself the way my mother saw me. So I, could, I went to two different elementary schools. I went to a middle school. I went to two different high schools, and I excelled in all those schools. I went to three different colleges. I went to Tuskegee University. I went to Marion Military Institute, a military school, and I went to Berea College. And the, the environments, ethnically, culturally, race, different. I went to a predominantly black college, Tuskegee. I went to a predominantly white military school. There were only two blacks. Me and my friend Ronald were the only blacks in the military school on campus, just two of us. And then I went to a, a college that may be in about 12% black, Berea College. But I excel everywhere I went. Why? Because I had this image that I could do it. I had this image that I was smart, and my parents developed that in me. Now, the problem with our self-image being developed through the eyes of people is what happens if people reject us, if people criticize us, what happens if they talk to us in a negative way? Then we're going to have some ups and downs, ups and downs, ins and outs. We're not going to feel good about ourselves because of what people thought about us, and especially in our formative years, our parents, our grandparents, uh, the people around us, the authority figures, teachers, coaches, and all that. Others, if they affirm us, appreciate us, we have good self-esteem. If they are critical, reject us, we have negative self-esteem. Sometimes our self-image is developed through our own eyes. And the problem with developing our self-image through our own eyes is sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than we are. Other times, we think too lowly of ourselves. I've been on both scales of it. You know, I played uh, a middle, uh, middle school basketball. I played high school basketball. I played college basketball. And I had a serious hoop dream. Listen, I thought, I, nah, I could hoop now. Don't, don't play with me now. I could hoop. But I thought I, I was headed for the NBA. I'm, you know, Man, once I got out of my 30-year hoop dream, I realized even though I was good, I was never NBA. Uh, I never had that capacity or ability to play in the NBA. And think about all the athletes right now. They're really thinking too highly of themselves because they really don't have the goods. Now, that doesn't mean they can't excel, be successful, but sometimes we put all of our stuff in one basket, and most people do not make it to the NFL, do not make it to the NBA, do not make it to the major leagues in basket and baseball. And so sometimes we're thinking too highly of ourselves, and then sometimes in ministry, I was taking, thinking too low of myself. The third way is through the eyes of Satan. And we don't have to say much about Satan because the Bible says that Satan is a liar. So anytime Satan tells us anything about us, he's lying. Now, what Satan wants from you is Satan wants you to have a poor self-image. 
He wants you to have low self-esteem because a, a poor self-image will destroy your potential, it will ruin your relationships, and it will sabotage your ability to communicate the gospel. If Satan can get you caught up in a, a low self-esteem and a poor self-image, it will destroy your potential. I don't care what you, you can have Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit in you, the name of Jesus, the word of God. You can be talented. You can be gifted. You can have all that. But if you have a poor self-image, then it will destroy your potential. But it'll ruin your relationships too. Because if you have a poor self-image, like I said, you'll project yourself on other people I know that's true because I struggle in my relationship as a married Christian early in our marriage. My wife, nickname is Peter. We've been married for 42 years. She's my very best friend on the planet. I love her up, down, all the way around, but we struggle in our marriage. And I talk about my side of the struggle. I had this idea that Pete, early in our marriage, and she don't love me, and she just don't love me. What I didn't know at the time is that I was struggling with rejection that was totally unrelated to her. The Spirit of God revealed to me that my problem, because I was struggling, I went to the Lord and said, what's wrong with me? And he didn't say Pete was wrong with me. He said rejection. In other words, he said that I had rejection. A person who has rejection, nobody's loved them. I thought coaches didn't love me. I thought people didn't love me. I thought Pete didn't love me. When you're dealing with rejection, you project yourself onto others. And what I di didn't know is that I could not have a successful relationship or marriage or whatever if I was unhealthy because I was dealing with rejection that was unrelated to my wife. I had issues. I had low self-esteem, a, a sense. And even though I was excelling in grades, but I was struggling in other areas because of the way that I saw myself. So I needed to get healing first so that I could have a better relationship. So when you see selfishness in relationships, when you see people that are critical and abusive and controlling and disrespectful, it's because they have a poor self-image. They have a poor self-image. So if you're in a relationship and you're selfish or abusive or critical or disrespectful, it's because you have a poor self-image and it's sabotaging your relationship. And guess what? It will sabotage, poor self-image will sabotage your ability to share the gospel. Think about it. Think about it. How in the world are you going to share your faith when you think nobody wants to listen to you? You think, I'm not a communicator. Uh, I don't talk in public. I don't like to talk to large crowds. I get so nervous. No, what happens is you have low self-esteem. You have poor, a poor self-image. You cannot have a poor self-image and have confidence at the same time. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. You can't have a poor self-image and have confidence at the same time. So you won't even share it. You may know more than most preachers, but you won't share with anybody what you've learned because you don't think they will listen to you. How is our self-image developed? It's developed through the eyes of people, the eyes of ourselves, the eyes of Satan. And sometimes it's developed, fourthly, through the eyes of experience. So many people identify themselves by their experience. They call themselves, they say, I'm an addict. I'm an addict. And then there's some programs that tell you, you have to keep saying that you're an addict. I'm an addict. I'm an addict. I'm an addict. No, no, the Bible never says anything about you being an addict. You may have been addicted to substance. You may have been, had an addiction but that's really not who you are. And then some people say, well, I'm a divorcee. They're identified by their broken relationship. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a divorcee. Well, I'm a divorcee. Well, I'm a divorcee. 
Well, you're identifying yourself by your experience or a failure. Some people walk around thinking they're a failure because that's the way they see themselves. They're allowing their experience to influence their image. But finally, thank God, there's another way. Your self-image can be developed through the eyes of God, how God sees you. And that's what we're talking about today. God sees the believer in Christ. Now, listen to me carefully, because I'm going to introduce you to you. You're going you're gonna, to, I want you to know you. God sees you in Christ. He does not see you out of Christ. He does not see you the way you were before you got saved. God does not see you in the light of your experience. Maybe you had an addiction. Maybe you went through a divorce. Maybe you did experience some failure. But that's not how God sees you. God doesn't see you as, I can't speak and I can't stand before people. God doesn't see you that way. God sees you in Christ. Colossians chapter 2.10 says, you are complete in Christ. That's how God sees you. Now, Satan wants you to see you in you. Now, now that's worth making a note of. That's worth making a note of. Satan wants you to see you in the light of your experience. Satan wants you to identify yourself by your experience. Now, when I went to vote today, I went to, my wife and I went to vote today, and before I could vote and before they handed me the sheet to vote on, they wanted my license. So I had to pull out my license, and it had a picture of me. That license and that picture identified who I was, an eligible voter. They could see it. I had to sign my name on it. That's Now, your identification is who you are in Christ. That's your ID. It has your picture on it. The picture of you is who you are in Christ. The picture of who you are is not your natural birth. It is not the family you were birthed into. You're never going to win until you know who you are and you pull out a legitimate ID. Your legitimate ID in the kingdom is who you are in Christ. And God sees you not according to your past, not according to your natural birth, not according to your experience. God sees you in Christ. Now, let's pause for a minute. Let's pause for a minute. Now that we know that God sees us, in Christ, in Christ, I I got a uh, I got a mint here in my hand, and I put these little mints in my mouth. I'm gonna put this mint in my fist. The mints are in my hand. Now, guess what? You cannot see the mints. You can see my hand, but you can't see the mints. Well, God, this is you. This is Christ. 
God sees you in Christ. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ. When God relates to you, he relates to you based on the fact that you're in Christ. Now, here's the big deal. Now, as a Christian, you must begin to see yourself in Christ. You have to see yourself in Christ. Now, listen to me carefully because I'm getting ready to introduce you to you. Therefore, this 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is, she is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, listen at this. I'm getting ready to introduce you to you because I bet you don't know who you are. I bet you've never met you before. Now, the New Living Translation of 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the same text, 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. So now listen, when God sees you, he sees you as a new creature in Christ. God sees you as a new person. That's who you are. You are a new person. So I'm going to take the rest of the time, and I want you to write these scriptures down to give you a sevenfold description of who you are. You, if you're born again, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, you are a new person. You are a new person. And here's the description. Number one, you are a worthy, worthy, W-R-T-H-Y, you're a worthy new person. Colossians 1, 12 says, giving thanks to the Father, which has made us meet, M-E-E-T, meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You, God made you meet, M-E-T, and the word meet means worthy. It means qualified. You are a worthy, worthy, or a qualified person. You are worthy to enjoy your full inheritance in Christ. You are not worthy because you live holy. You are not worthy because you do everything right. You are worthy because God made you worthy. So you are a worthy, you are a qualified new person. Now, never again, come on, say never again. Come on, say never again. Never again say, I don't deserve it. Get that out of your mouth. Get that out of, well, I don't deserve these blessings. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. Get it out of your vocabulary. You're qualified. You're worthy. That's who you are. You're worthy. You are worthy. How did I become worthy? How did God, how did I become qualified? See, I became qualified to vote by registering to vote. And I had to be a legal citizen to register to vote. So I had to do something to qualify. I had to do something. You don't have to do anything to be worthy to be qualified. You are worthy because God made you worthy when you receive Christ. You're worthy. Now, secondly, you're holy. 
H-O-L-Y. You're a holy new person. That's who you are. I'm going to introduce you. You never met yourself before. You're holy. That's who you are. You're holy. When God sees you, he sees you as holy. The word holy means set apart, and it means set apart, and it means to blameless. The way God looks at you, he said, now you holy. When God sees you, he, he sees you as holy. Ephesians 1, 4. Ephesians 1, 4. The New Living Translation says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. To be holy without fault in his eyes. To be holy without fault in his eyes. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a person with faults. He doesn't see a person with blemishes. God sees you in Christ, and God sees you as holy. You are a holy person, holy. Thirdly, you are a loving person. Before you got to Christ, you just was messed up. You were mean, you were unkind, you, some of you were nasty, and some of you were nice. But now, that's not you anymore. You are a loving person. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. God put his love in you. God shed his blood. He sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brought Jesus' love. You, you are a loving person. Come on, say, I'm a loving person. Come on, say, I'm worthy. Come on, say it. I'm holy. Come on, say it. I'm loving. Number four, you're fearless. You're fearless. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Proverbs 28.1 says, the righteous are bold as a lion. You're fearless. You're a fearless person. Guess what? You're not afraid of anything. There's no fear in you. There's no fear in you. You are fearless. Fearless means to be without fear. It means the absence of fear. You are a fearless person. So never again are you going to be talking about how nervous you are and you can't do this and you're concerned about what they think. You are fearless. Number five, you're strong. You're a strong person. You say, oh, yeah, but I feel so weak. We're not talking about how you feel. Yeah, well, I got all these weaknesses and all these all stuff. See, now you're listening to the devil. You're listening to your experience. You're listening to other people. You're strong. Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong. Come on, say it. I'm strong. Come on, say it. I'm a strong person. Come on, say this. I'm a strong person. Come on, say it. I'm a strong person. Say it one more time. I'm a strong person. Number six, you're a masterpiece. I bet you didn't know that about you. I bet you didn't know you were a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's masterpiece. That's the New Living Translation. We are God's masterpiece. In other words, I looked up the word masterpiece, and it means truly sublime. Truly sublime. Marvelous. It means extremely beautiful. Think about it. I bet you never met you before. I bet you thought, well, you know, I got this big old nose. I wish I didn't have this big old nose. I wish my ears wasn't so big. Man, I wish I, I mean, I wish I had smaller hips and I, I wish I was this way and I wish I, no, no, no. That's not who you are. See, I told you you had never met yourself. You're extremely beautiful. Extremely. Because you're a masterpiece. You're God's masterpiece. And when God sees you, he doesn't see you with a big head. He doesn't see you with oh, big hips that you don't like. He doesn't see you with skinny legs you don't like. He doesn't see your stature. God sees a masterpiece. He sees you 
as truly sublime. You're extremely beautiful. Think about it. Every day you should get up. Every day. I'm just extremely beautiful. Number seven, you're a winner. And that's, that's the foundation text of our, our, our podcast. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, always causes us to triumph, always. If you always triumph, you always win, then you are a winner. I double dog dare you. When I was little and growing up, when I was a kid, we used to say, I double dog dare you. I double dog dare you. And, and I dare you to confess these seven things, open your mouth and confess these seven things one time every day for a year. I dare you. I dare you. In fact, it's really not going to take a year. You confess every day at least one time, I'm worthy, I'm holy, I'm loving, I'm fearless, I'm strong, I'm a masterpiece, I'm extremely beautiful, I'm a winner. If you confess these seven things over your life, open your mouth. You ain't got to say them to nobody else, just open your mouth. You can look at the mirror and you can talk to the mirror. You can say, Mike, you're worthy. Mike, you're holy. Mike, you're a loving person. Mike, you're fearless. Mike, you're strong. Mike, you're a masterpiece. Mike, you're truly sublime. You're extremely beautiful. You're extremely handsome. Mike, you're a winner. Listen, one time, one time a day, every day, for one year, Open your mouth and say it. And then if you want to add other times, you start saying this. You're going to meet yourself. You're going to find out who you really are. And Satan is, going to, Satan is not going to have any place in your life. Now, I got some five wrap-up wrap things. And I, I, got a, I got three questions here. You may have some more. Send your questions in. But I want to wrap this up. Because here's what we were talking about today, creating the reality of who you are in Christ in your world. Now, listen at this. These are my five things I was thinking about, and you can send your questions in now. Listen, the desire, this is the first thing I wrote these down. The desire to be humble can lead one into the trap of false humility. The desire to be humble can lead one into a trap of false humility. See, some people, they talk down themselves. They say, well, you know, I don't deserve it. Oh, it's, not, it's just not me. I'm this. And they think that's humility to talk down yourself. Actually, that's pride. Because, see, if God says you loving and you call yourself mean, a God says you are worthy and you said that you are undeserving. If God says you're holy and you're talking about how you're always sinning, if God says you're fearless and you're talking about how afraid you are, if God says you're strong and you're talking about how weak you are, if God says you're a masterpiece and you're talking about things you don't like about your body, if God says you're a winner and you're talking about your failure, you're not being humble you're being proud because God is saying one thing, you're saying something totally different about yourself. Here's the second thing that I want to leave with you. Your agreement with God in regard to your spiritual identity, because that's what we've been talking about today, who you are in Christ, your identity. Your agreement with God in regard to your spiritual identity in Christ is what causes it to be manifest in your experience. See, what you want is what God says about you to be manifest in your spirit, in your experience. So your agreement with God in regard 
to your spiritual identity in Christ is what causes it to be manifest in your experience. In other words, these seven things, when you look at these seven things, you don't see them manifested in your life. That's all right, okay? Because your, your agreement with God in regard to your spiritual identity in Christ is what causes it to manifest in your experience. Third thing, your spiritual identity in Christ and your natural experience may not be in alignment. And that's where faith come in. You said those seven things sound so good, but I just don't feel like that's me. I don't, I'm not acting like that's me. Well, okay. Your spiritual identity in Christ, those seven things that I mentioned, and your natural experience may not be in alignment. That's the third thing. Number four, but expressing your dominion through the word spoken out of your mouth will create, establish, adjust, repair, and restore your identity. Now, if you begin to exercise your dominion by speaking, Speaking those seven things out of your mouth, it will create it, it will establish it, it will adjust anything that needs adjusting in your life, it will repair and restore the lost identity. Then number five, when believers talk their natural experience and ignore their spiritual identity, God calls that an evil report. Now, I'm going to say that again. When believers talk their natural identity, their natural experience, what's going on in their life, and ignore their spiritual identity, what God says about them, God calls that an evil report in Numbers 13. Now, this is powerful. Now, what I'm doing is I'm helping you to pass the test next time. We talked about creating the reality of who you are in Christ in your world today. Next week, we're going to talk about creating the reality of where you are in Christ in your world. And then we'll talk about creating the reality of what you have in Christ in your world. And then finally, we'll talk about creating the reality of what you can do in Christ in your world. That's where we're going. I got five, I believe, outstanding questions. So listen to these questions. Let's, let's jump in. Question number one, how do we stop Satan from using our positive self-image against us? He can set us up to make us feel foolish. Now, listen, I think I'm getting what you're saying. How do we stop Satan from using our positive self-image against us? Now, listen, Satan cannot stop your positive self-image. He cannot stop it. And he cannot stop you from speaking it. When you're speaking it, you're aligning your spiritual identity with your natural experience. And you will always feel foolish when you're in faith. You're going to always feel foolish because you're going to feel like, and sometimes it's going to look like, you're not a new person. You're not a new creature. You're not worthy. You're not holy. You're not loving. You're not fearless. You're not strong. You're not a masterpiece. You're not a winner. You're going to feel that. And when you say, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, you may have just filed for bank, 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 uh, bankruptcy. You may have lost your house. You may have lost your job. When you say, I'm a winner because I always win in Christ, 
Your experience is that you lost a job. Your experience that you filed for bankruptcy, that's your experience. What you're doing now is you're exercising dominion. You're speaking your spiritual identity. You're a winner. Now what you're doing, you're going to bring your experience in alignment with what God says and not your experience. You're not denying your experience. It's real. You're not saying you didn't file for bankruptcy. You're not saying the Bible says you have dominion, which means you can take God's word in your mouth and anything that is out of alignment, anything Anything that is lost, anything that needs adjusting, anything that needs repairing, you can do it with the words, word of God in your mouth. So you're going to sound foolish to people, but people are not who you're trying to please. Second question. Now this is so powerful. This is a comment because so many Christians have been held and bondaged just by not knowing this kind of information. And that's true. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. See, a lot of people have really fatalism. Whatever will be, will be. If what I got, the cards I was dealt, God said, let them have dominion, which means you can control things. You can change things. You can repair things. You can restore things. And what we're saying, God restored. God do this. No, he gave you the dominion. You have to exercise your dominion. Comment. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for introducing me to me through God's holy word. I'm glad you got a chance to see you today. I bet so, so many Christians, they never met themselves before. I'm glad you saw you today. Question, is it, it possible that you had the ability and not the anointing to play in the NBA? Well, now I'll be honest with you. You talk to most of my friends that grew up with me that really, they joke now, but they know I could hoop. They knew that I could hoop. No, science-wise, environments, there are a lot of things that go into playing in the NBA. It's not just talent. Sometimes it could be size. Sometimes it can be where you're playing ball at, the level of competition you're playing on. It can be a lot of things, but I think I didn't have the right environment. I didn't have the right, a lot of things. And, and, and there are people in the NBA, sometimes they had a different environment, different, it's a lot of things. It's a lot that goes in. So maybe I thank you for even bringing it up because you know I had a serious hoop dream. Um, Question, great day, Pastor. What is the scripture reference for I am a winner? That's 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 14. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We quote it all the time. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Um, comment, powerful message. Praise and thank God for reminding me of who I am in Christ. Um, thank you for your diligence and love for people. Question, how do you determine where to draw the line between humbleness and passiveness, low self-esteem? Um, that's a great question. Oh, that's a really good question. Here's how I, I draw the line. Humbleness is what I'm is when I'm saying something that lines up with what God says. You know. Uh, 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 a low self-esteem basically is I'm talking what I'm feeling, I'm talking what I've experienced, I'm talking out of my logic, and most of the time you're talking out of your feelings. I just don't feel like I can do it. I don't feel like they'll listen to me. That's not humility. That's low self-esteem. Because God says you can do it. And now you're saying, you know, they won't listen. 
Who told you that people won't listen to you? Where did you get that information? What's your documentation? What's your factual evidence? What does the scripture say? Well, uh, for example, years ago in high school, I never took physics. And I was, I was, I was a really smart student. Uh, anybody that know me and they'll tell you about my life in school, they, say, they always say, he's a smart guy, okay? I wouldn't even take physics. I probably would have made an A in it, but I wouldn't even take it because somebody told me it was so hard. And when they told me it was hard, their opinion created my identity. I allowed their opinion to establish my identity in that area. So I said, I can't do it. I ain't gonna, I ain't take it. So I wouldn't even take it. Last question. What are some other books in the Bible that deal with self-image and seeing ourselves the way God sees us? It's all through the Bible. And, and really, if you'll stay with me, the next three sessions, we're going to talk about where you are, what you have, what you can do. I promise you, you will have all the information you need. If you'll go back, listen, look this up, look up the scriptures, meditate on this, and then when we get to the next session, you will have done your meditation in that area. I'll take it to another area, and then I'll try to think about any books that I can share with you. Thank you.